Amen. Please remain standing if you're able, and let's turn to Genesis 48, page 41 in the Blue Pew Bible. Genesis 48, and we'll only read the first seven verses. May God bless the reading of his word. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son, Joseph, has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Well, death is at hand for uh, Jacob here as our passage opens in chapter 48. Uh, he is dying. Outwardly, he's wasting away. But he was full of faith in God's promises to the very end. Jacob's faith as he was dying is what the writer to the Hebrews focuses in on as he wrote about uh, the patriarch Jacob. In Hebrews 11, verse 21, it says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. Jacob, to the end here, is characterized as a man of faith. And we might not really say that of him in his younger years. Uh, he didn't seem to be so much a man of faith. He was a man of scheming. He was a man of stealing uh, to try to get what he wanted. His life was, uh, in many ways, the very opposite of faith in God. He was always taking matters into his own hands uh, to get his own way. But here, we see that he's been changed. 
at the end of his life, he's very different from what he once was. His eyes were dim with age, but his eyes of faith were seeing very clearly. Well, in our passage here, Joseph learns that his father is ill, and uh, so he decided to go see him. He took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to Jacob, and during their meeting, we see Jacob's faith. His faith is demonstrated in the giving of this blessing to those children. And he must have been very weak at this point. When Joseph and his sons arrived, uh, Jacob had to rally his strength, had to muster all his strength just to be able to sit up on his bed and spend time with them and to give this blessing. One writer comments that this was a faith-powered act, just to sit up and be attentive uh, in that moment. And he did that by faith because it was his strong desire to give this blessing before he died. And he had that desire because he believed God's word. He believed God's old promise to Abraham. He believed that it would surely be fulfilled. It would surely come to pass. And he wants his children and his children's children to believe that and to build their lives on that reality that God's promise was going to be fulfilled. And so it was faith in God's promises that drove Jacob to do what he does here. So with Joseph and his two sons there, Jacob begins to recall those great promises of God. He said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me, and he said, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring. It's pretty amazing to, to think of what's happening here. These are going to be Jacob's very last words. As far as we know, these are his last words with his beloved son and with his grandsons. And what does he want to talk about? He only cares to talk about God and God's wonderful word. Isn't that beautiful? I hope all of us can be so God-centered and so faith-filled and hope-filled when it's our time to draw near to death. Jacob spoke of this place called Luz. It was the old name for Bethel. We're more familiar with the name Bethel where God appeared not once but twice to Jacob. You remember, he appeared to him once at first when he was fleeing from Esau. 
And then he appeared to him again when he was returning to Canaan after being gone for some 22 years. And in those meetings, God affirmed and applied to Jacob those great old promises that he had made to Abraham. And then they'd been passed down to Isaac. And then now to Jacob. And those promises were still in effect. Even here, when Jacob was about to die, the promises were still in effect, and they would be in effect still into the future for his heirs. And speaking of his heirs, here they are, and we see an adoption of them. That's essentially what we see happening here. Jacob's um, placing uh, a claim upon these grandsons. He wants to claim them as his own sons. That's exactly what he does here. It's very clear. He says to Joseph, your two sons who were born to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. He's saying, they will be counted as mine. Now, the rest of your children, they can be counted as yours, but these two are to be counted as mine, henceforth. What he's saying is, they're going to become uh, my firstborn sons, as it were. And they were. They were treated that way from there on out. They were treated as Jacob's children. They would become fathers of two of the tribes of Israel. And by the way, this was, this was God's doing. This isn't just Jacob making a, a wild decision at the end of his life when maybe he's not thinking so clearly. Maybe Joseph thought that's what was happening initially, but he's carrying out what God planned. He's speaking prophetically to declare God's will and God's purposes here with these children. You, know, you may wonder, like I've wondered, why didn't Joseph get a tribe named after him? He didn't. I don't know, but in reality, he has the honor of two tribes to come from him through these two sons of his. And I'm sure that he was quite happy with that. Not only did these two boys become Jacob's adopted children, but they became his firstborn children, as it were. They displaced Reuben. First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1 tells us, it says of Reuben, he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Remember, he, Reuben slept with Jacob's concubine. He was displaced, and these boys were given his place. Isn't that something? We see God's sovereign will and choice here. God chose these two sons of Joseph 
And he rejected the one who thought he had the right and was entitled to be the firstborn. Instead, it was given to these two sons who really had no right at all to be counted as firstborn sons. And this is how God's grace works. It is God's sovereign choice that brings any person into relationship with him as a son or daughter of God. It's God's choice alone that brings us into his favor and his family. We have no right to it. We're not entitled to it. We have no merit of our own, no greater value uh, over anyone else. But in God's sovereign good pleasure, he has chosen and adopted us purely by his grace, drawing us into union with his son. And we really don't know why, except God is well-pleased, and it glorifies him. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy, as Paul wrote. Well, perhaps this adoption of these two boys we see was a, was a foreshadowing of, of what Paul speaks of there in Romans 9. Uh, he laments the unbelief of his fellow Jews there so, so beautifully. It's so beautiful to see his heart. His heart is broken for his kinsmen according to the flesh. He longs for them to be saved. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. That's a heart for the lost. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brethren, the Jewish people. He goes on to say, they are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. By the way, this is still the spiritual condition of Israel and the Jewish people today. Their unbelief toward the promised Messiah is cause for sorrow and anguish in all our hearts. We should, we should feel that sorrow and anguish, not only for our lost loved ones, but for the Jewish people. You might think of them as your, your lost uh, elder brothers. Yeah. Speaking of current events today, I do think we need to be pro-Israel uh, in their right to defend themselves against the kinds of attacks that we've seen uh, a week ago and to protect their citizens from those who want to destroy them. 
Now may God enable them to do that, give them protection and strength to fight this fight in a just way as much as possible, and may the Lord bring it to an end soon. But the only way that true peace is going to come is when both people, both sides, come to new life in Christ, one soul at a time. And when Christ finally comes again and brings perfect, eternal peace, I can't imagine this conflict will end ultimately until then, until he comes. But having said that, we need to, we need to realize that Israel and the Jewish people on the whole are an unbelieving people and have been for many centuries in the same spiritual condition as Muslims or any other unbelieving people or the whole world that is in rebellion against God. It's just the same. They're estranged from God and from salvation. But what's unique about them is they had all these wonderful promises as the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These promises were theirs for the taking, as Paul says there in Romans 9. But the vast majority has not received those promises. They've rejected them. We might say, like Reuben, they've been displaced, at least for a time, because of unbelief. That's how Paul writes of them in Romans 9 through 11. They rejected the Christ who is the very substance of all God's promises. And from a human perspective, this is such a devastating tragedy. It's, it's worse than the attacks that we've seen upon the, 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 the people of Israel in recent days. This is truly heartbreaking. And yet in God's purposes, in God's plan, this was not a tragedy at all, but it was God's plan, God's predetermined plan and his sovereign choice. He was pleased in his wisdom and in his sovereign choosing to cut off Israel for a time and in part, not totally and not permanently, and now during this time, he's been grafting in the Gentiles to his people. And we have to be so thankful that he's doing that. And yet we hope and we look forward to a time when he will graft in again many from among the people of Israel. And he's certainly able to do so. He's able to bring about a great conversion of the Jewish people in the last days. And I do think that is what the scriptures point forward to. But they have to come into his kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ, just as everyone does. There is no separate program for Israel. There is no other way of salvation. There is only one way, God welcomes all who will come to him through faith in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile alike, 
They all must come to him by faith and trust in Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. You know, we see a little foretaste here of God's grace to the Gentiles right here in this passage in Genesis 48. Joseph's children, half Gentile. These are not full-blooded Jews by any means. They're half Egyptian. Isn't that beautiful? They're exalted to this high place, and they're not pure-blood Israelites. It tells us that God is not concerned about such things. He never was focused on the ethnic purity of his people. Sadly, the Jewish people got wrongly focused on that, and they did uh, focus on their being literal, physical descendants of Abraham's. And they thought that's what guaranteed them favor with God. They were wrong. They were wrong. Remember the discussion Jesus had with the Pharisees? He said, if you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, they got so angry at this, they said to him, we are Abraham's descendants, and we've never been the slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus said, I know that you're Abraham's descendants, and yet you're ready to kill me because you have no room for my word. I'm telling you what I've seen in my Father's presence, and yet you do what you have heard from your Father. These were the descendants of Abraham that Jesus was talking to. The physical children of Abraham. But Jesus told them that spiritually they were not Abraham's children at all. Just the opposite. He said, you have a different father. A different father than my heavenly father. Your father is the devil. So then who are the true children of Abraham? Paul tells us, he says in Galatians 3, the true children of Abraham are those who have faith in Jesus. They are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. And Paul goes on to say, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that beautiful? You and I from the Gentiles are fully God's children, not second-class citizens. So although the promises belonged to the Jewish people, 
They rejected them by rejecting the one who was the fulfillment of the promises, Jesus Christ. And now God has been so gracious to call to faith and to draw people to himself from all nations, even from among his worst enemies. Think of that. We can all confess it was while we were yet his enemies that he did this gracious work to call us. But even people from among Hamas and ISIS and other groups like that, you can look up on the internet testimonies to faith in Christ from people who have come from these radical, murderous groups. The Lord even calls to himself such people and makes them his children, his beloved. And we all were by nature just as opposed to God as they were, just as opposed to Christ as any of those people. But God, those glorious words, but God, God intervened. He intervenes to save his enemies. While we were still God-hating rebels, he miraculously intervenes and changes hearts. And he brings us into his body, into his family, the church. He brings us into living fellowship with him. That's what this is really all about being united to God in a relationship that will never end. He does that for us. He unites us to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit the moment we trust in the Savior. We didn't have any right to a salvation so wonderful as this. But God gives these blessings completely by His grace. And we wonder why. If you're thinking rightly, you wonder why. Why me? Why should I be so blessed? Why me and not others? Why are the Jewish people cut off? Why are my lost loved ones not saved and yet I'm brought to a saving knowledge of Christ? I don't know that there's any answer except that. God is completely free and sovereign in the way that he gives his grace to sinners. He chooses to pour out his grace on people, not because of anything good in us, not because we're better than anyone else or there's something special about uh, certain people. No, he simply chooses whom he chooses. He has mercy on whom he has mercy in his sovereign grace and wisdom. And he has the right to do that because he alone is God. And he is pleased to be bringing a great, vast number of people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he makes them his full-fledged sons sons and daughters in Christ. And that should leave you and I completely humbled. 
without a hint of boasting, because there's not a thing we could boast about. We should not have any conceit, not any sense of entitlement. We can only marvel at God's grace and wonderful mercy and praise Him for it. It's to draw us to praise Him and to love Him for His grace. Paul says there in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. Praise the Lord. Let's be thankful people and be God's worshiping people and adore Him, this all-wise, wonderful, glorious, gracious God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is your God and Father in Jesus Christ. And praise the Lord. He will save all His chosen people and lose not one. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your grace is amazing and astonishing. It is wonderful. You are wonderful. We pray that you'd open each of our minds to grasp the greatness of your undeserved grace to us, the worst of sinners. We pray that you'd enable us to respond to the word of grace with living faith. Teach us to trust humbly in your word and believe every part of it. Even as Jacob did so uh, tenaciously to the end of his life, relying upon uh, the truth of your promises. And help us, Lord, to live in dependence on your Son always and never on ourselves. We look to you. We ask your blessing upon your people. In Jesus' name, amen.